0: Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. We're recording this at the close on July 14th, 2021. Today, we got lots of topics. We're talking small caps. We're talking... Acre Capital Management, a fund that I like to follow, Dialogue Health, which is care.to. And uh, yeah, it should be a great episode. Simon, how you doing, man?
1: It's going very well. I'm surprised we're already July 14th. I guess it's just uh, sink, sinking in that we're this far into 2021 right now.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of wild. July 14th, yeah, geez, it is August already, it feels like. All right, let's kick this episode off. Let's talk small caps. Before we do that, just to pump my own book, TFI International is up 8.5% today on the news that they're reporting strong results out of that acquisition that they bought UPS Freight for. That was such a good acquisition. I can't believe the price they paid. And it's paying off now. So Alain Bedard of... TFI International continues to get it done, making good deals. So I've been talking about this company for a long time. Go check out their chart. All right, Simon, uh, kick us off on small caps.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to talk about small caps. Uh, I've been meaning to do it for quite some time. And then uh, someone uh, sent me a question and I figured it it would be a good idea to talk about it this week. And um, as a side note, we have not forgotten about our poll. We'll be doing it soon for those two companies. Um, so to get started with small cap, what's a small cap? The most common definition out there that you'll find is about three hundred million to two billion in market cap. Personally, I would probably include uh, something a bit wider, even up to five six billion dollars, because I find that that two billion dollar mark, and it's very subjective, but. That $2 billion figure to me is probably, was more accurate maybe like 10 years ago, something like that. Uh, Right now we're seeing like large companies, we're seeing companies over a trillion dollars, you know, 100 billion is not considered that much anymore. So to me, in terms of how the company will react and the type of businesses you have, personally, it's probably more like five, six billion range, maybe 500 million to five, six billion range. But again, very subjective. It's just to understand that these type of companies will behave a bit differently than their larger counterparts. Um, For you, Braden, how do you see that?
0: Yeah, I I think it's a very arbitrary, you know, market cap in general, like small cap, micro cap, large cap, mega cap. It's all very arbitrary. Now, I've always had a a contrary take to what we define as small caps and, and mid caps. And the reason for that is like if you google small capital say like anything under 2 billion I think the uh, BlackRock uh, small cap ETF for Canada is anything under 3 billion. Now the reason I have a contrary take to that is as a business owner myself like a 2 to 5 billion dollar company is a gigantic enterprise. Um Now, I'm going to talk a a bit more about this after you speak about small caps and what you're seeing, but a lot of these companies in that range will be very large businesses, huge businesses, medium-sized enterprises, if you will. Now, what's interesting about that is it'll be paired up with some speculative companies in the same market cap That are not well established, that are not gigantic companies on their own. So, I'm going to speak more about that that nature of the arena you're playing in in small caps. But you got to do a little bit more work for those reasons.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, small cap, like I said, it really depends the way you're looking at it. Traditionally, I think it's been more the 300 million to 2 billion. But again, there is different ways to look at it. I'll go over some of the advantages of investing in small caps and then some of the drawbacks as well. With all things being equal, a company obviously that has a smaller market cap, say $500 million market cap, will have more growth potential than a $100 billion company. And I can just see Brayden here saying like, oh, what about Google? What about Amazon and things like that? But all things being equal, if you have two similar Th- companies, those are they're more Those are defying exactly.
0: Yeah, those are defying the laws
1: of of physics
0: <laughs> no.
1: of, of large numbers of at large the moment. Numbers, it, exactly,
0: it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it's a good thing to bring up. Yeah,
1: as generally I would say, you know, small companies will have more growth potential. Um, They tend to not have a lot of analysts covering them. Sometimes they will have zero analysts covering them. So there's potentially more value to unlock because they're more under the radar. The arbitrage can be a lot more significant for small caps. I remember about three, four years ago, I was looking at this small cap. Uh, The ticker was PFB.TO, and they had announced that they had a special dividend of a dollar, and their share price was under $10. So that's a 10 plus percent special dividend. That was actually on top of their regular dividend. And it took, I think, several months until the market actually caught up and then the share price actually ticked up to make it a bit more you know reasonable in terms of dividend. But that's just a random example there where you can really find some pretty interesting ob- arbitrage, but you have to be willing to put the work in those. Institutional investor will tend to not be in small cap aside from some specific ETFs or venture investors or smaller institutional investors. That's That's pretty simple because an investment uh, for a lot of institutional investors that would make the needle move for them would mean that they would have to become significant shareholders in the stock, which comes with more regulatory scrutiny. Um, And Warren Buffett has actually mentioned that several times. So there's a reason Buffett will often trim really good businesses that he owns Uh, because he's reaching a 10% threshold, which has a lot more regulatory scrutiny. And it just shows that a company, for example, for like Berkshire, um, it would be very unlikely for them to invest in a small cap because it wouldn't do anything to the bottom line. And the last thing about small cap is they will tend to act as a whole a bit differently than large company than larger companies, or even if you compare the indexes or the different ETFs, they will move similarly. But they do have, you know, they might have bigger swings at times too. So that's something else to to keep in mind in terms of the advantages. You have any comments on those before I go to drawbacks?
0: No, other than the fact that you brought up, there's could be no analysts covering the business and. This can be one of your greatest strengths is that you don't have anyone looking at it um, and th- that can be significant a significant advantage to a retail investor.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it can have a downside too, right? Because if you're looking at low multiples, if it always kind of remains a smaller company, those multiples may never expand. So that's, that's something to, to keep in mind. Uh, but now some of the drawbacks of investing in small cap stocks, like I mentioned, they will be more volatile than mid, large, or mega caps, uh, since the businesses tend to not be as mature and well established. Obviously, there's exceptions to that. Yeah, I'm sure you can find some companies that are a billion market cap that have been in business for years, that are well established, that have you know are growing slowly but are more mature businesses. But as a general rule of thumb. Less or no analyst following can mean that it's more difficult to find information. And we've talked about this before where, you know, analyst price targets, we really don't pay attention to those. But you can find good information by reviewing what analysts are actually saying about certain stocks. So you don't have that option or... You'll have limited information when it comes to analysts for smaller cap stocks, but like I said, it could be viewed as an advantage like we just mentioned, but also as a a drawback. There's a higher proportion that will be listed on secondary exchanges like the TSX Venture, which have less stringent requirements than larger exchanges. This means that you can find companies that are doing shady or kind of financial shenanigans, um, things like what phase drive is doing, that will tend to be much more prevalent in smaller cap businesses, especially when you're looking in the uh, less than like a billion dollar kind of sector. Um, you know, we've mentioned it before. We've been contacted by companies wanting to do Stock promotion and those I would say they're either very small cap or micro caps for the most part, Uh, but you don't see that as often in mid to larger cap. I mean, you can still see fraud in larger companies uh, and and Enron obviously is is a good example right there and you have Luckin Coffee that we saw recently, but it's just more prevalent in the smaller cap stocks. And last, the lower volume means that the spread between ask and bid can be quite significant at times, and it could impact your entry point. So if you are interested in small cap stocks, look at that volume. And for the most part, you'll probably need to put a limit order if you want the price that you're looking to get in to actually be executed. Um, The kind of market order may be uh, kind of tricky to put. You may end up paying more than you intended to. So now what do the numbers say? So I, I wanted to draw a little bit of numbers and look at the um, ETFs that are tracking small cap, compare them with some of the larger cap ETFs. The first one that I looked at was uh, in Canada because we are the Canadian investor so it's XCS.TO the iShare s and small cap index ETF compared it to the XIU.TO the iShares s and 60 index ETF so what we can see is clearly that the uh, nor the larger index has outperformed the uh, small cap in that proportion uh what i have over here the numbers are a little small so i'm having to uh, squint quite hard but it's it's outperformed it by quite a bit if i'm looking at the small cap it's about 36 percent and change and then the large cap uh, it's more than doubled. So you see quite a significant difference. And then if you're looking at the US, the VIOO, so the Vanguard S&P Small Cap 600 ETF, you compare it with VOO, which is the Vanguard S&P 500 Index Fund. Um, again, same kind of result, although I would say much closer. So this one, the small cap has done close to 250%. And then the VO has done close to 300, over 300%. And I forgot to mention, this is over a 10-year period. So I wanted to take as long as an horizon as I, not I could, but you know, a pretty long horizon because we invest in the long term. So it's very clear that in the past 10 years, the larger caps have outperformed the smaller caps over here, but there is more to these indexes, um, more to smaller caps than these indexes. There's other types of indexes or ETFs. I mean that you can invest in that focus on smaller caps, and here's a few of them for people who are interested. But I encourage you. Again, to do your own due diligence on this, but there's other ones. So this is not like just uh, all the ones I could find. There's plenty of them that you can find out there. Some will be specific to countries, some will be more specific to sectors while still focusing on small caps. So the first one is a uh, VSS, so the Vanguard FTSE All World XUS Small Cap Index Fund. So these are small caps excluding the US. When you see an ETF that has X something like XUS or X China, that means it's excluding that specific country. PCST, that's one I've mentioned before. The Invesco S&P Small Cap Information Technology ETF focuses on small cap information technology. VBK Vanguard small, ga- small Cap Growth ETF, that one has actually had some pretty awesome growth. If people look it up, it's performed quite well. Uh, VBR, which is the Vanguard Small Cap Value ETF. And then the last one that I pulled was the EEMS, the iShares MSCI Emerging Markets Small Cap. So these are just examples that you don't have to necessarily you know, have a kind of broad market small cap. You can also find a bunch of different caps, small caps You'll find them for specific countries, emerging markets, things like that. I would say a word of caution on investing in small caps that are specific to an emerging country is those can be very, very volatile. Also, very risky uh, just because in often, oftentimes in those countries, you won't have the same regulation as Canada, the, the U.S., for example. So keep that in mind if you're looking for like a small cap in in Brazil, for example.
0: There's one thing that I would advise folks look into is if you look at XS or XCS.TO, which is BlackRock's iShares Small Cap Index ETF for Canada. It's the S and P TSX one. If you look at the holdings there, they're all under 3 billion in market cap. Now, structurally, if you were thinking about managing your own portfolio and how and compared to how this ETF is managed, it by nature and by structure and by strategy sells winners. Now, this is kind of contrary to what you and I talk about on this podcast so much, which is let your winners run, average up on them. If the company is doing better, it's worth more than it is in the past, it deserves a larger portion of your portfolio. Now, if a company crosses that 3 billion in threshold because it's a great business, the ETF sells it, right? So if you have this awesome winner, this small cap that you picked up at 500 million in market cap it rises to 5 billion in market cap you love the business you like it even more it's proven itself the growth has been tremendous it's gained market share and then now you're going to sell it i mean come on right that's the, it's a complete opposite of what we we try to do as investors is let those winners really run double down on them it deserves it and uh, that's kind of the problem with these ETFs products that are structured like that. I just would never manage my own portfolio like that. So it's hard for me to get behind investing in a small cap or like a market cap based index to begin with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that. I mean, for me, I see it more as gaining exposure to a sector of the market that you don't have exposure to, especially if we tend to focus, I think most of my portfolio is either mid or large caps or mega caps. So I think for me, I enjoy having a small portion allocated to small caps, fully knowing that, yes, there's going to be that rotation, but You can also make a case that that company that is growing and is indexed out of it, and they're investing in another company, that you're recycling that capital and potentially getting more growth. But I do get your argument. Uh, For me, I think personally i do have some exposures to small cap in my portfolio it's not a big portion uh, but you know it's it's good to understand the kind of the advantages and the drawbacks but again these are just etfs and later on i'll talk about uh, dialogue technology dialogue help and uh just look at what a small cap kind of looks like one that recently ipo
0: yeah before we wrap up small caps i just have a little section on you know, my particular take on investing in in small and micro cap companies. And really it is that there are awesome small public listings out there. There's, there's a ton of them. There's great ones. There's the, the hidden gems. The next big compounders exist in this arena, but focus on the ones that are actually high quality businesses have a great management team, hopefully founder led because if they're small, I wanna see it still run by their founder. Um, so in this arena, you're gonna have like 750 million in market cap companies that are growing high quality and even profitable. I know that, that cool P word that you don't see very often in that arena, but they'll also be 750 million in market cap. So like, like for like on market cap. That are completely speculative startups, junior mining companies, some ESG company that are raising tons of money in the public markets based strictly on an idea. And these scare me a lot. Um, so let's think of like Nikola Motors, which still trades for $5 billion, uh, on the U.S. market today, which is crazy to me, right? Like there's, it's, been a, it's been a dumpster fire. Now that stock hit over twenty billion in market cap because they were uh, air quotes Tesla competitor. They had these uh, this electric vehicle company, and they had these awesome looking car designs. They had this electric truck coming out, this electric semi truck coming out. Now the entire business, all twenty billion of it, was based on a couple of drawings, some three D renderings of what they may make. Um. Now, this madness happens all over the world. Nikola Motors had not sold a single dollar worth of cars and was sitting at a $20 billion in market cap valuation. You know what they had, Simon? They had $30,000 on their income statement. Guess what that $30,000 was? It was Nikola Motors putting on a rooftop solar, solar power system on the founder's roof and they build it to the company under 30K of revenue. Now, this is just not only fraudulent and and terrible, but it happens a lot. So building cars is obviously immensely complicated. There's this wild supply chain. There's hundreds of parts in each vehicle, and it requires millions or billions in capital expenditures up front. So the point I'm making here is that there's very good businesses in the small cap arena. But they'll also be trading at something very similar in valuation to these speculative public listings that have not proven themselves, might not even have product market fit whatsoever. So for example, and I don't mean to pick on this listener, he's he's a great guy, but I got a request on Twitter today to check out this venture stock. It's a 650 million in market cap. It has 200 million in debt on the balance sheet. So 850 million in, in enterprise value. Now, last year in the trailing 12 months, this company did four thousand dollars in revenue. That's not a typo. Four thousand dollars. I make four thousand dollars in one day sometimes. Like you gotta be, you gotta be justifying some real business if you're if you're sitting at 850 million in enterprise value. So be careful in this area. It requires a little bit more work. Now, your advantage may be or disadvantage, as Simon pointed out, that there's less people looking at it um, and it's like the you know buy stocks when there's blood on the streets. Small cap investors say buy stocks when no one's in the streets. like no one's even looking at this stuff, and that could be your uh, your biggest advantage. So there are ways to win really, really big in small caps and there's ways to lose really, really bad. Um, Ian Castle. Who focuses on microcaps. He's pretty big on Twitter. His uh, bio says, all great companies started as small companies. So I I back that. I back that. All right, Simon. uh, Let's talk about Chuck Aker's capital management, Aker Capital Management. He is a phenomenal investor. And uh, he's been doing this a long time. Are you familiar with Chuck Aker's work?
1: A little bit. Uh, Not as much as you, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, I talk about him quite a bit. He's a fund manager out of the States. He has been early on some really, really big long-term compounders. His style, I feel aligns a lot with what I think is great investing. So I typically have read a lot of his stuff and look at his 13F. So let's talk about it. Okay. So he has what's called the three-legged stool. The first leg of the stool is focusing on the business. So he's looking for enduring, predictable, high returns on equity and free cash flow. Okay. We talked about that quite a bit on this podcast. He says that the business must have pricing power in excess of a cost inflation to protect themselves. He likes businesses that are easy to understand, have strong balance sheets, and have identifiable, identifiable, sustainable, competitive advantages. So that is stool number one, the business. Stool number two is management. He wants management with exceptional skill, integrity, and passion. They treat shareholders like partners. They don't care about Wall Street's short-term focus and they are compensated rationally. That's number two, management. Number three is reinvestment. Now, this may be the most important one, which is a pattern of disciplined reinvestment and extensive opportunities to reinvest free cash flow organically or through acquisitions. Now, this is that optionality that we've been talking about. And and he believes that that's important in reinvestment. So he thinks that if you have three things here, the three-legged stool, you can find what are called compounding machines. And Chuck talks about compounding machines all the time. I'm trying to find them in my own own portfolio all the time as well. Okay. So before I wrap it up with Chuck Aker, these are his top 12 holdings. And just kind of arbitrarily picked one because these are all at least 4% weightings, whereas the rest of them drop off a cliff or are quite small. So, in order of largest to smallest, I own a lot of these names. And that's just, I don't know if it's by fluke or like I study his work a lot and I come to the same conclusions. Uh, I'm not really sure, but MasterCard, Moody's Corporation, American Tower, Visa. Uh, KMX, CoStar, O'Reilly Auto Group, Adobe, KKR, Roper Technologies, s Communications, and Brookfield Asset Management. So see a lot of high quality compounders. He lets his winners run. Like MasterCard is worth 14% of the portfolio, which is quite high for a fund like this. So I like his style and I think people can learn a lot from his investment framework.
1: Yeah. No, well put. I don't have too much, uh, too much to add there. Let's hear about Dialogue
0: Health. Care.to.
1: Yeah. So Dialogue Health, I mentioned the name before prior to their IPO, uh, when we talk about Well Health, but also um, Cloud MD. And I wanted, I was interested in seeing when uh, Dialogue would go IPO just to see what their business looked like. It's uh It's a telehealth play, if people are familiar with them. A little bit of a background on them. So they IPO'd in March of 2021. They are down more than 20% uh, since their IPO. They have a market cap of uh, around $700 million. Before I get into the business, that's a good indication why, personally, I do not like to invest in companies that IPO right away. Um, I like to try and wait at least, you know, a year just to get a good sense where the business is going, have a full year financial statement, understand the business a bit better. You get a bigger pic- better picture by doing so. Whereas when the company IPOs, oftentimes there's going to be a lot of hype around it. You only have the information based on the prospectus. So you don't have the full picture. If you do like to invest in IPOs, make sure that you allocate accordingly. I would not start a big position, especially even if you're super excited in a company, it's fine to try and get in the game, but try to make that a very small portion if that's something you're interested in. Personally, I like to, to wait and see a little bit. So this core idea of evolve into an integrated health platform, a one-stop healthcare hub that centralizes all your programs in a single user-friendly application, and they provide access to services 24 hours a day 365 days a year and you can access from your smartphone computer or tablet I have used once dialogue in the past it worked fine Um, the outcome you know I didn't love the outcome because I ended up having to call my family doctor anyways but uh, no the uh, the app and everything worked pretty seamlessly dialogue is a business to business model so b2b which means that employer and organizations subscribe to their services for their employees. According to their perspective, they partnered with a bunch of large uh, insurance providers, including Baniva, Canada Life, Desjardins, Industrielle Alliance, and Sun Life. They have relationships with over two hundred, uh, with over two thousand customers in Canada and Germany as well. They recently made an acquisition in Germany. Some of the services offered are primary care that, inc- that can include prescriptions, mental health, EAP which is employee assistance programs and occupational health and safety. They primarily uh, primarily generate revenue from customers through a per member per month subscription model also known as PMPM and the contracts that they have with employers or organization will typically be from one to three year contracts. It provides some uh, significant revenue visibility. Members. So if you're a member and your employer subscribes to Dialog Help, you have unlimited access to their platform and you don't pay any extra fees unless the service that you want to access is outside of the subscription that your employer paid for because they do have different bundles available for employers. So the numbers, what do they look like? Um, it looks pretty good at first glance. Um, they had 321% year-over-year increase in revenue Q1 versus Q1 of last year. So that's $15.2 million versus $3.6 million. Obviously, we've seen this with Teladoc. We've seen this even with Well Health with a bunch of different uh, telemedicine providers. They got a huge tailwind from the pandemic they have 65.3 million in re- recurring revenue so i'm assuming it's essentially their q1 revenue just extrapolated on a yearly basis it'll be interesting when they come out with their full year financial results how it looks they have 1.3 million members which is a 534% increase year over year they have a 102% net retention rate, which is something you always want to see at least 100%, and that's a key metric whenever you have a subscription model. You wanna see that net retention rate to stay as close to three digit as possible. If it's slightly under, I guess it's all right, but again, the higher it is, especially over 100%, that's really what you want to see because they're increasing their subscription base their gross margin were a bit disappointing i'll be honest so it's 41.5 percent gross margin and as comparison people know i own Teledoc. Teledoc has around 65 percent uh, gross margin so that's that's a pretty significant difference i don't know if it's because uh well health is still a pretty small company compared to Teledoc. maybe there's room to grow there but um, i remember well health and i don't have the gross margins Offhand, but Well Health was similar in gross margin. I think it was in the high 30s, low 40s. But Well Health had a more diversified operation than just telemedicine. So for them, it made more sense to me. A telehealth play, I don't know. I would expect slightly um, higher gross margins.
0: Yeah, when you consider the revenue mix for Well is like primarily clinics compared to a technology platform uh, providing telemedicine, 41 seems low.
1: Yeah, exactly. It'll be something just to keep an eye on. Um, There's almost one positive thing. There's almost no debt on the balance sheet, very little debt. They are free cash flow negative, 4 million plus free cash flow negative in Q1. Um, It was around, so I guess that's around 15 to 20 million if we extrapolate that over the year. So that's something to keep an eye on. That's something I would also like to get better over time, Uh, definitely improve year over year. Um, A company that's growing this quickly, obviously there's a bit more leeway there, but that's something you still want to improve because that's essentially cash burn right there. Um, There are some significant backers for this this business. Um, So I had to look in the prospectus and uh, when they went IPO'd. So this may have changed a little bit because oftentimes those early investors will sell a bit after IPO'd. But um, I'm pretty sure Sun Life, uh, with what I saw, I did some research, are still pretty significant shareholders. So when they IPO'd, Sun Life had a 16.23% share in the company. Um, they had investment from WSC IVLP, which had 15% uh, share in the company. And um, as well, HV Olds Brinks Venture Fund, which had uh, 11%. So there's a few other um, pretty significant investors with high single digits, low double digits, but those were the main ones. Uh, a lot of them are actually venture uh, firms that invest in the company. And the CEO of the company is Sheriff. Um He's a pretty young guy, late 30s. Has been uh, He's the co-founder of the company as well. He's uh, obviously the current CEO. There's some interesting people on the board as well, including one board member who's part of the Caisse uh, de dépôt de placement du Québec. For those who are not from Quebec, it's the investing arm of the Quebec Pension Plan. So they have uh, quite a bit of investment everywhere. So it's interesting to see that. There's also Paul Desmarais, who people might know from Power Corps, who's also on the board. So there's really some interesting people on that, uh, that board of directors. And the last thing that I just had a look at, we've mentioned this before. It's always interesting to see how the employees um raid the business uh you can have a look on glassdoor just find that information at a glance this one had a decent but not huge sample about 70 employees Uh, actually 48 um, i just have the number here so a decent sample not super huge but they 87% of them approve of the CEO and the overall rating of the company, if they would recommend it to a friend was 73% and 3.9 star out of five. So that's pretty good. It's not, I've seen better, but I've seen a lot worse as well. So it's something, it's a company to keep an eye on. It is a small cap business. So there's definitely some growth potential here. It's not trading cheaply. It's trading over uh, 10 times sales. Um, So obviously, it's more of a growth stock, but it's definitely in that uh, would qualify in that small cap arena at uh, 700 million uh, market cap.
0: Yeah, well put. And you've, you've hit on some of the key aspects here. I like that you pulled up some Glassdoor stats, too, because that's important with small caps, especially when they're founder led. That'll give you an idea into some of the culture. And if the employees actually like working there when it's founder led, that's really important it's really hard to value something like this right like it did q1 it did 15 million revs uh which was up 321% now my question for something like this i have i have two questions that whether or not we have the answers here right now i don't know but it's always good to kind of ask yourself and this is kind of a candid i haven't looked into this business at all i just knew Simon was doing a segment on it mm-hmm. is one how do they expand out of canada I don't know the answer to that. I guess they're doing this acquisition strategy in Germany as well.
1: Yeah, they're they've done a few small acquisitions. So they're definitely a bit of acquisitions going on. Nothing major but a few acquisitions here and there. Yeah.
0: Okay, so that's that's interesting. And then two, with it being B2B, if I'm a large enterprise here in Canada and I want my employees to have access to telemedicine as a benefit to being an employee, you know post COVID, why would I continue to do that? I I don't, I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot of appetite. Um, but I don't know, like it it could, it could be a thing. Yeah. There's a lot of traction gaining out of the pandemic for a business like this. So Mm -hmm. the next few quarters are going to be incredibly instrumental for the business and they'll tell a lot into what's going on.
1: I would say I'm not too concerned about the, the businesses not continuing those subscriptions just because um, think about the time that you save if you need to use telemedicine versus going to an urgent care clinic or going to the hospital. For an employer, just that time saving alone, it could be the difference between, you know, you contact, you use the app, takes you half an hour, 45 minutes overall to see the doctor or the nurse on that application. You're done, that's it, versus having to go in person. If you don't have a family doctor, you have to go in person, potentially, to the emergency room. It takes you seven, eight hours. You have to take the full day off. So for me, there is definitely value for employers there. What my biggest question, and this would apply also to Teladoc, so it's not specific to um, to dialogue. It's really, like you said, the pandemic portion. Um, that hike in revenue. And Teladoc has warned out a little bit that they would see there was a lot of growth just pulled forward because of the pandemic. But what do the numbers look like next year? Because there was, mm-hmm. obviously looks amazing comparing this year to last year because there was this massive adoption to telehealth because people really did not have a choice. But um, to see if they'll be retaining that. And I would also like to see if they end up having an option whereas a pay as you go. So you don't need to be part of a big employer. You just, you know, you're a self-employed mm. person. You pay 50 bucks per visit or whatever it is. You're still saving time versus having to go in person. Having that kind of service, I think, would be very beneficial. I know Teledog does offer the kind of pay per visit model as well for people that are not insured. So that's something that I would be interested in seeing from them. But my take is it's promising. I would not invest in them right now. I definitely want to give it some time, probably another year, just to see how it um, evolves over time and just, you know, are those gross margins improving? Are they losing business to a teledoc, to a wealth held, to a uh, doc MD or whichever one it was, Cloud MD? Sorry. Cloud Cloud and the and how or Maple you mentioned your previous employer Mm -hmm. they they had Maple so how they do uh, are they expanding in the U.S. and starting to compete with much larger players or are they focusing on expanding in Canada and maybe underserved countries that might be something else that they're doing
0: the problem or the thing that I can't wrap my head around with these telemedicine companies. Is the benefits to software, if I were to wrap them up, were our operating leverage, scale, and like those two kind of com- combine and you find it in their margins. Now, you can scale so well with software incrementally. That's what's creating that, that operating leverage as you grow but with something like this expanding into different jurisdictions is a lot more difficult there's all these different headwinds you have to face because the healthcare system in Canada is so so different than the healthcare system in the US so for a company like um Teladoc there are companies that provide these kind of services as being an employee, as one of your benefits to being an employee there is like this health coverage. In Canada, that just doesn't exist because of the free healthcare. So this pulled forward revenue in Canada, I'm just wondering how sticky that really is when a customer does not need to keep doing that post-pandemic.
1: No, it's it's a good It seems like
0: a nice to have, right? It seems like this nice to have thing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that's actually one of the, One of the biggest items uh, for several years, TeleDoc was saying that they had slower growth because of all the regulatory hurdles that they were facing in the States. Um, And Mm -hmm. that's one thing I found in their prospectus is... They're actually turning this around um, for dialogue. They're seeing that as an opportunity because it's still quite underserved in Canada because it's so traditional government-focused, our public healthcare, that they see some potential growth as the Canadian healthcare system embraces these type of technologies more and more. So it's funny that you mentioned it. You kind of mentioned the counter-argument. They kind of take it over. But prospectus tend to be... Very Well, yeah, very, very positive, they're going to the
0: they're gonna attack every risk that someone like me can think of yeah. that has mm-hmm. done zero due diligence on the business. They're going to want to ha- get in front of that right away, right? So like, if I can just on your little spiel here, think of some potential risks in the business model, they're going to want to be ahead of those right away. So just like anything, if you're looking at investor presentations, you're looking at prospectuses. I'm okay with management being optimistic. I'd prefer if they're optimistic. I mean, like if they're going to take my capital, I want them to think that the business is growing. But um you just have to peel it back a little.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's it. And just looking at the numbers oftentimes will give you a good idea whether what management is saying makes sense or not. <laughs> exactly. Like, they could be saying a lot of, you know, good things about the business. I know I know we we talk about phase drive a lot, and that's an extreme example. But they, according to them, they're going to be the next Fortune 500 company. And then you look at the number, and it's like, wow, will they even survive this year? So I think yeah, looking- Yeah, this quarter. Exactly. Like the, the management discussion is always a great thing to read, but you kind of take it with a grain of salt, and you compare with those numbers to see if it actually makes sense.
0: Another thing that I try to pay attention to is- if they're reporting on some KPIs, when I say KPI, I mean like key point indicator. So if it's if it's Spotify, they're saying how many subscribers they have to their premium service and then how many subscribers they have to the, the ad supported service. Those are like the easiest KPIs that they cover right away. Now, be wary, unless the business has changed fundamentally, be wary if they have some new KPI they're char- they're charting out that is going in a direction that looks nice. Um, just, and Spotify is killing us. I don't use it as a bad example, but like if the KPI that they're tracking is changing kind of every annual report, I'm a little concerned because, uh, the fundamentals that they cared about before, if they're not trending the correct way, they're not going to have on a nice, fancy, nice looking chart. Uh, right on the cover page of the report.
1: Yeah, for for companies like this, and that's not spe- specific to telehealth. Um, I would say subscription services. I w- the one thing that tends to be reoccurring for KPI uh, membership overall membership the increases and also the net retention rate. Those are two that you'll see quite a bit. So anyone interested in this one, uh, that's a those two those two right there would be two like key metrics that I would keep an eye on. Obviously. You'll have to do more research than that, but those, especially the net retention rate, I, that's probably one of my most important when it comes to.
0: Especially for a company like this where we're concerned about it to begin with. Yeah. So if they can back it up, then okay, maybe I shouldn't be that yeah. concerned about it. Um, okay, guys. Hope you're having a great summer. It is already mid-July, which is a little scary. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you on the podcast next week. As always, Monday morning, this show comes out. If you're not following us on Twitter, go to Twitter at CDN underscore investing. That's where we keep you all up to date on what's happening with the podcast. Uh, speaking of that, if you are a Spotify listener and you download the show so that you can listen offline... You will have to re-download those episodes. We, are up, we have upgraded our technology, our publishing technology um, for you guys. And you're going to need to re-download those shows. Uh, so if you notice that they're not on your phone anymore, just go ahead and re-download them. All right, that does it for this week, guys. Go to getstockmarket.com. Getstockmarket.com is where we find almost all of the data and analytics that we talk about on the show. It'll redirect you to my business. It's called Stratosphere. It's the platform for long-term self-directed investors. We have our own in-house research and analytics platform. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. Again, that is getstockmarket.com. See you next week. Bye-bye.
1: The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simone may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.